Well, I hope you did uh, pick up a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you uh, came in. I'm going to sort of divert just a little bit. I'm going to stay on topic. You'll see what I'm talking about in a moment if you've been uh, a part of this series for the last few weeks. But we've been in a series entitled, What Jesus Looks For in a Church. And we've been focusing on Christ's messages to the seven churches that are found in Revelation 2 and 3. And again, we're just wanting to ask, hey, what does Jesus look for in the church? What's important to Jesus? What is He looking for in and through our lives? So look at that introduction there. In our last lesson, we looked at the church in Thyatira. We've seen, we've looked at Ephesus, and then we looked at the church in Smyrna, and then the church in Pergamum, and last week we looked at the fourth church at church at Thyatira, and we saw last week, sadly, that this church, although wonderful in many ways, had become infected with moral compromise and sexual impurity and was confronted by Christ to repent. Now, it wasn't the majority of the church. The majority of the church was walking with God, but there was a group that had fallen into false teaching, that had led them into sexual immorality. And Jesus was not only displeased with that group that had fallen into sexual immorality, but He also was displeased with the church who had become, although wonderful in many ways, tolerant. They had not confronted. They had not challenged those that had fallen into sin. And He basically tells them, you either deal with this or I'm dealing with it. And I'm going to deal with it in a very, very strong uh, manner. And then that last sentence in the introduction that sort of makes the uh, transition to today's message. Therefore, uh, before moving on to the next church in Sardis, I thought it would be good to share a practical lesson on how to maintain moral purity. I did not intend to do this. Uh, Just this past week as I was praying, uh, I, I just felt strongly compelled Uh, to share this message before we go uh, further. You know, an elderly uh, pastor was asked by a young man, uh, Pastor, when will I stop being tempted by sins of the flesh? The old pastor looked at the young man and he said, Well, son, I'll be honest, I would not trust myself until I was dead about three days. (laughs) Here's reality. Here's what we're up against. We live in a polluted world. And we are inundated with sexual temptation. But the problem, and I think we would all admit it, is not just the fact that we live in a sin-polluted world. There's also the issue of our sin-infected hearts. Where we battle with selfish desires. And then add to all of that the fact that we have an adversary, the devil, whose one goal is to trip the believer up so that we fall into sin and bring reproach upon the name of Christ. So in light of all that, we come to the question, is it really possible to live a pure life? And I believe it is. I sincerely believe it is, and that's the subject of today's message entitled, How to Live a Pure Life in a Polluted World. So please follow along in your notes. 
and we're going to examine uh, five uh, truths which uh, I believe are the key uh, to living a pure life today. And we have to begin right here. The first one, commit to God's sexual standard. We can't go any further until we're willing to commit to God's sexual standard as outlined in the Word of God. Look at Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. So the very first issue for every Christian to resolve related to this is, who is going to set my moral standards? Am I going to set my own standards? Am I going to let my peers establish my moral standards? Will it be my boyfriend? Will it be my uh, girlfriend? Or, or am I going to submit to God's moral standards as revealed in the Word of God? And I hope you realize, and this is where it becomes very difficult because you're going to be going uh, upstream against uh, the currents of this world, God's moral standard is never going to carry the public opinion polls of today. Because God's standard is that sex, sexual involvement, is exclusively reserved for the marriage union between one man and one woman. A husband and a wife. Now let me ask you a question. Who thought up the idea of sex? Yeah, God did. And the reason he restricted sex to marriage was not to be a cosmic killjoy, but to protect us from the physical, emotional, and spiritual consequences of sex outside of marriage, and then to provide for us the most pleasurable experience inside of marriage. And that's so important to realize. And that's not just true here, but when you look at any of God's commandments, never lose sight of that reality. That in every one of God's commandments, what's motivating them is His love for you. It's to protect you from that which is going to harm you, and on the other hand, provide for you a true, fulfilling, joyful life as you experience what He intended you to experience. Because again, God is the Creator. He knows how marriage is to work, how sex is to work, and it's in following His order that we'll know the greatest uh, pleasure in, in that. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. So, this is where we need to start. Regardless of any past moral failures that you've had, are you ready today to commit to God's sexual standard? Now, if you are then you're ready to move to the remaining truths. If you're not, you just need to stick right here until you resolve the issue of who's going to set your moral standards. But look at the second truth. I trust you are committed to God's sexual standard, 
And this second truth, in my opinion, is probably the most important. And that is, you have to capture your thought life. You have to capture your thought life. The battle with sexual temptation. And to be honest, the battle with any temptation. I don't care what it is. So much of this message not only applies to sexual temptation, but virtually any other temptation that you can imagine, whether it's anxiety or, or whether it be unforgiveness, whatever. The battle with sexual temptation will be won or lost in your thought life. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Apostle Paul wrote, we fight, and it is a fight. It is a battle. It's not easy, but we fight to capture every thought until it acknowledges the authority of Christ. Look at James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Temptation is the pull of evil thoughts. These evil thoughts lead to evil actions. Please circle the phrase, evil thoughts lead to evil actions. And let me show you how that happens. And that is from Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. If you'd like to turn there, fine. Let me first just read the verse for you. And it, and it shows us the progression of sexual sin. How a person uh, evolves into this uh, moral failure. Uh, now, the verse as it reads... It's going to begin with the root and it's going to move, or begin with the fruit and it's going to move to the root. So he says in verse 5, Colossians 3, verse 5, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. Now, remember now, he's going to move from the fruit to the root, from, uh, to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So look at the five steps to sexual sin there in your notes. The first step is greed, because we're going to start with the root and then move to the uh, fruit. And greed is simply the desire to have what God has forget, forbidden. Greed is the desire to have what God has forgiven. And it's very interesting, he says, greed which amounts to what? What's it say in the verse? Idolatry. Greed which amounts to idolatry. See, idolatry, the essence of idolatry, the essence of any sin, is when anything or anyone becomes more important to me than God. So when I turn from God, to desire what he's forbidden. That's not just greed. That's idolatry because I'm putting that thing above God himself. Now James tells us that each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Each one is tempted when? When he is enticed by his own lust. Now listen now. Lust is nothing more than mental promiscuity. I'll say that again. Lust is nothing more than mental promiscuity. Being un.
faithful to the Lord in your thought life. That's why I don't know how many times I've said from this pulpit, I've never known any believer that has ever known any significant level of growth or victory until they got dead serious about their thought life. And engaging the battle there in their mind to bring their thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. So I, I begin down the road to sexual sin when I let my thought life go unchecked by dwelling on inappropriate sexual thoughts and images. And then greed leads to notice step two, evil desire. Now I begin to fantasize in my mind what it would be like. Jesus referred to this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. He said, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to be physically attracted to, the person, to a person of the opposite sex. But Jesus did say it's wrong to look with lust. And you might want to circle that word look. It's, a, it's an interesting word in the Greek text. It's a present participle. And the word refers to a continuous process of looking. The idea is intentional, repeated staring for the purpose of entertaining the mind with sexual fantasies. Great example in the scriptures. King David, he walks out on his roof just in an innocent fashion one night. And he accidentally, there was no intent, he accidentally came upon the scene of Bathsheba bathing on a roof below his. The fact that he noticed she was a beautiful woman, the fact that he was sexually attracted to her was not sin. But listen now, but when David chose not to turn away. When he chose to continue to look at Bathsheba for the purpose of feeding his sexual desires, he crossed the line from temptation to sin. According to Jesus, David became guilty of adultery long before he brought Bathsheba into his bed. Evil thoughts lead to evil desires. And then evil desires lead to step three, passion. Emotional flirtations. Saying I'm available. See, the more you let your mind fantasize, the more you desire it, which results in your emotions being set on fire with passion. At this point, if you could, you would. All you lack is the opportunity. So, what do you do? You begin to test the waters by letting the other person know through flirtations that you are available. And going back to David, it was at this point that he began, if you're familiar with the story, to inquire about Bathsheba and then had her brought to him. Evil thoughts left unchecked lead to evil desires. Evil desires lead to passion. And then passion leads to, step four, impurity. My will at this point gives in. 
And I'm now aggressively looking for the opportunity. See, it begins with thought life. It ignites the emotions, the passions. And then finally your will caves in. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Just a great, great man of God. I think most of you are familiar with him. He lived in Germany, a great theologian in Germany during the Hitler regime. Uh, he actually was uh, one of those that was uh, put to death uh, by the, uh, by the na- Nazis. But he wrote this describing this point in temptation when the will has caved. He says, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns as in in flames. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. And our only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken away from us. And, that, and now we're, we're left with what? Step five, immorality. I seize the opportunity and engage in sexual sin. But again, where does sexual sin begin? Evil thoughts which inevitably lead to evil actions. The root of the problem is mental promiscuity. Therefore, the key, the key, the key to victory is nipping sexual sin in the bud, in your thought life. Look at Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Be careful how you think. Because your life is shaped by your thoughts. Now listen now. God created the human mind so that you cannot think on two things at the same time. But this also makes us responsible for what we think about. See, you may not, I may not be able to control an inappropriate thought or image that suddenly pops into your mind. Or you may just be walking along and see a billboard or just see some... You mean, things like that you, you can't necessarily control. You'll have inappropriate thoughts just pop in your mind. Vile thoughts. Images. But you do control... You can't control it, but you do control whether you allow those things to linger there. That's the point. The fact that that comes, that's temptation. That's not the point of sin. The sin is, instead of turning from that, I allow my mind and my thought life to linger on that. So the key to breaking the power of any temptation is to get your mind thinking about something else. Turning from that. Look at uh, Philippians 4 verse 8. Fix your thoughts... On what is true and honorable 
and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. I like what Job said in Job 31 verse 1. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. In other words, Job realized, if I'm going to walk before God in purity, I'm going to have to learn to bounce my eyes off of that which is inappropriate and put it on that which is appropriate. I'm going to have to learn to bounce my thoughts off of things that come into my mind that I know is going to take me down a deep, dark hole and put them on things which are pure, which are right, which are good. So to live a pure life, You must commit to God's sexual standard. You must capture your thought life. And now the third truth, a very important one in our day and age, you must control media intake. You must control media intake. Bottom line, you cannot make a steady diet of filth and then expect to be spiritually healthy enough to resist the power of sexual temptation. Look at Psalm 66 verse 18. It says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The, Lord, the word regard is ra'ah in the Hebrew text. And that word means to look at or to view or to view. The word heart could be translated mind. So what the psalmist is saying is this. If I allow my mind to dwell on inappropriate messages, the images, the Lord will not hear me. Again, we're not talking about those sudden uh, inappropriate thoughts or images that pop in your mind. What the psalmist is saying is, if I allow my mind to linger, to dwell on, to fantasize on those things, the Lord will not hear. See, what God is looking for is a change on the inside. You know, this is where Jesus nailed the Pharisees. He says, on the outside, you folks look like such wonderful, moral, righteous people. But he said, in reality, you're a bunch of whitewashed sepulchers. On the outside, you look beautiful, but the inside, there's nothing but corruption and ugliness. See, it's, good. it's easy to put on a good show in front of everybody. You can come to church, you can come to your Sunday school classes, you can attend Bible studies, you can do all that. But where God is looking for authenticity is in the inner man. And He knows the battle that that is. The simple point I'm trying to make here today, we're never going to advance forward until we see that that's where the battle is. That's where we have to put the focus on the thought life, what we allow ourselves to dwell on, linger on. So think of, of the application of this in relationship to media intake. Do I need to be discerning about TV, about movies, books and magazines, music, internet, mobile devices? I mean, just ask yourself, just be honest, what did you watch and listen to this past week? I mean, was it images, words, and lyrics that stimulated evil thoughts or good thoughts? Reality is, if you're going to live a pure life in a polluted world, there'll be times where you're going to have to walk out of the movie. 
You may lose a few bucks, but better than having a polluted mind and having to deal with those images. Uh, you're going to have to learn to turn the channel or even turn the TV off. You're going to have to learn to be selective in the music that you listen to. And when it comes to the Internet, when it comes to mobile devices, I mean, you all know pornography and inappropriate relationships, they come looking for you. Therefore, you must be diligent to establish proper safeguards and filters and accountability with other folks that will love you and that care for you. And, and parents, we need to give care with our children with all these iPhones and mobile devices as well. I read what I thought was a pretty startling uh, study this past week along these lines. There was a study done on, I believe it was two to three, I think it was 2,000 just random families. And these, this study was on small children. It was uh, 14 and under. And they found that they, these, on an average, the children were spending over 23 hours a week on the mobile devices. And they found that they're interacting with their parents less than half that amount of time. So this is something for parents to get on top of. I, and let me just be, just very, I'll just be very direct with you. One of the things I've been seeing as a pastor for years now, I mean, this isn't a recent development, but parents coming into me with small children that have been exposed to and struggling with pornography. And how did it happen? Their friends at school and the smartphones and all the devices. All I'm trying to say, parents, is we've got to take great, great care for our children uh, to protect them in this area the best, uh, the best that we can. Uh, we all need to heed Psalm 103, 101.3. Isn't that a great verse? I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. Look at the uh, fourth key truth, and that is I must learn to circumvent the devil's temptations. I must learn to circumvent the devil's temptations. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, we read, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So let me show you four ways to circumvent his temptations. And the first one is simply to avoid situations where you know you're going to be vulnerable to temptation. Avoid situations where you are vulnerable to temptation. Mark Twain actually gave great advice along this area when he said, there are several good protections against temptation, but the surest is cowardice. Remember Joseph, when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce this young man? What did he do? He ran. <laughs> Literally, he ran. See, Joseph teaches us, and the Bible emphasizes that you don't try to beat temptation by getting in a tug of war with temptation. No, you drop the rope and you run. That's what you do. 
It's been said that the best companion against immorality is geography. For example, again, let me just be specific with one example. It's must, much, much easier to resist the temptation to get alone with your date in one of your homes when the parents are not there than to resist the full power of sexual temptation in that home by yourselves. Bottom line, you cannot regularly put yourself in the face of temptation and not be affected. You can't. It's not see, the, the idea is not see how close you can get to it. Run from it. Get away from it. Look at the second thing. Choose friends carefully. So important. Choose friends carefully. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. On the other hand, we read in 2 Timothy 2.22, enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with, notice, pure hearts. I mean, how many people have been brought down by running with the wrong crowd? Choose friends who are going to bring you closer to God. Turn away from those who are going to lead you away from God. Again, we're not trying to say as believers to isolate ourselves. I mean, we, we exist to engage the lost world. People that are totally given over to the sins of the flesh, to, to see them redeemed, to see them uh, no salvation. But, I want it, but those that I get close to, those that I develop intimate friendships with, I want to be people that are going to be positive influences uh, on my life. Uh, I think of what Paul said. You know, he, he told the believers in Corinth, he said, you know, don't associate with a so-called brother. In other words, don't associate with someone who claims to be a Christian if they're a fornicator or an adulterer. This is their lifestyle because they're just going to bring you down. And then he makes it very clear. I'm saying, he's saying, I'm not telling you not to associate with those in the world. I mean, because we're, we're, we need to reach out to them. But what he's talking about is friendships, those that we look to to influence our lives and that... Uh, uh, can direct us. Uh, look at the uh, third way to circumvent his, uh, temptations. Establish protective standards in relating to the opposite sex. Establish protective standards in relating to the opposite sex. Look at the advice given in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. Be careful. If you're thinking, oh, I'd never behave like that, let this be a warning to you, for you too may fall into sin. And if you're familiar with the context, it's talking about the children of Israel who fell into idolatry and immorality. And here's my point. The time, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking primarily to our young people. The time to establish dating standards is not when you're passionately kissing your date. It's before you ever go out on the date. You need to understand that in relating to the opposite sex, there's... Uh, you, you can call it the, the, the law of diminishing returns. You know what I mean? You know, I, I get interested in this girl, you know, single guy, I'm interested in this girl, and we begin to develop a, a friendship and, and a relationship. And then, uh, you know, I finally get that courage to grab her hand. And it's a thrill. It's a thrill. But eventually, again, the law of diminishing returns. It becomes old hat. And you just naturally want to take it up to hug him, 
to kissing. My point is, you need to realize that law of diminishing. That's why you need to set the standards. There needs to be clear boundaries when you say, here it is, and I'm not going beyond that. And you communicate that to your date, and you let them know that. And if they're unwilling to respect that, you don't need to be dating that person. It's just that simple. And, and let me give uh, our young people some questions to ask in establishing your standards. What would a person I respect think of me? In other words, in light of the things you're, you're wrestling with about where your standards would be. If, if I were to break up with the person, will I be able to look at that person in the eye? Respecting them and them respecting me. Do I feel guilty about what we're doing? I mean, just, you know, God gives uh, guilt God's little warning light. Something ain't right. And He's trying to warn you. He's trying to stop you dead in your tracks so you don't make a terrible mistake and wreck. Uh, does it turn on me sexually? I mean, you have to recognize don't lie to fire you can't put out. Would I want my future married partner doing this now with someone else? And then how far would I go if Jesus Christ were sitting next to me? Because reality, Jesus Christ is sitting next to you. If you're a believer, He's inside of you. It, I actually had, I've, I think I've shared this before. Uh, we had an interesting uh, testimony that came our way uh, some years ago through the TV ministry, I was uh, preaching a message on uh, sexual sin, uh, similar to this, and, uh, and uh, I was contacted the next week. The, the message was shown on our uh, TV program, and I, and, I was, and I brought this point right here about that if you're a believer, you take Jesus everywhere where you go. What you see, he sees. What he, you hear, he hears. And if you take him into a bed of fornication or adultery, you're taking him with you right into that bed of fornication. And there is a man that turned on our program who is laying in bed with a woman that was not his wife that had been involved sexually the evening before. And he heard that. And God convicted him to the quick, and he contacted me, and he repented, and turned from that to walk with God. But this point just rattled him when he realized what he had done, and we all need to realize this as believers. Uh, the fourth point on how to circumvent the devil's temptations, keep the focus on improving your marriage. So let me just talk a moment uh, to those of you that are married. Keep the... I've, spoke just a moment ago on uh, sort of our young people, singles that are not yet married, but let me speak a little bit to those who are married. I love uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her charms and tender embrace satisfy you. Let her love alone fill you with uh, delight. Um, most of the other translations are even a little more graphic than that. That's why I use this particular uh, living Bible. But Rejo circle the words rejoice and satisfy. Contrary to popular opinion, God is pro-sex. He created it. 
And sex, again, was God's idea. And please notice, he intended sexual intimacy for the mutual pleasure of both husband and wife. The purpose of sex is not just procreation to have children. It's for mutual pleasure of husband and wife to to bring them into a deep intimacy with one another, body, soul, and spirit. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, we read, Do not cheat, he's speaking to married couples, do not cheat each other of normal sexual relations, or you will expose yourselves to the obvious temptation of Satan. So let me just give you some tips on how to keep romance alive in your marriage. Number one, keep dating. Even in marriage, keep dating. If there were more courting in marriage, there'd be fewer marriages in court. <laughs> so keep dating. Uh, you've heard, you know, this is something that Kathy and I have felt has been, you've heard me say this many times, we feel it's been a, one of the primary keys in our marriage relationship. Every single week, week we have our date night. And we've been doing this for, for uh, I guess, what, 42, 43 years now at least. It started within two or three years after we were married. Uh, and so keep dating. Keep talking. The next one, keep talking. And what I'm talking about here, the sharing of non-sexual affection. I'm just about, about talking, warmth, getting involved outside the bedroom is the foundation of enjoying sexual intimacy. Typically, when there's a problem with a couple's sexual intimacy in the bedroom, then there, there can be physical, medical issues that have to be examined, dealt with. Uh, but I'm talking about outside of that. Often, if there's a problem with sexual intimacy, the problem is what's going on outside the bedroom. And so it's very, very important to keep talking, keep expressing uh, uh, non-sexual affection to one another, uh, which provides that foundation of enjoying sexual intimacy. Uh, Keep kissing every day. It helps keep the pilot light lit. Uh, uh, who was it? Uh, was it Mrs. Prophet? Some of y'all miss it. Mrs. Prophet uh, was at the church. Uh, Kathy drove up, dropping me off. This was years back. You know, I, I can't remember how long ago it was that Mrs. Prophet passed away, but she was an interesting lady. And, uh, and Kathy dropped me off. And I walked out, and she was watching. And I didn't cast, kiss Kathy goodbye. Mrs. Prophet read me the right act. She said, she said son, you always kiss your wife goodbye. And, uh, and that, is, that, that was good, good advice. And then uh, lastly, uh, keep a high priority on sexual intimacy. One of the great enemies of sexual intimacy is in marriage is simply fatigue. Therefore, be careful that you don't so overcommit yourself that you have no time or energy for sexual intimacy in marriage. And then let me give you one more. Keep your sexual feelings turned toward home. In other words, if sexual feelings are triggered toward someone else other than your mate, immediately put your spouse in that picture and bring that spark home. Amen? That's what we're talking about, bouncing the eyes, bouncing the thoughts. Then let me share one more key truth on how to stay pure in a polluted world. This is the fifth truth there in your notes, and a very important one, and one that does not need to be neglected, and that is calculate the cost of sexual sin. 
Calculate the cost of sexual sin. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Proverbs 6.32, a man, or we can add a woman who commits adultery, doesn't have any sense. They are just destroying what? Themselves. So, so listen as we close. Never forget, never, 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 ever forget that the bait that Satan allures you with, it only hides the hook. The hook of consequences. Satan is a master at showing you all the pleasure of sin, but none of its consequences. Again, go back to David that we alluded to earlier. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He was able to write in Psalm 32 as he turned to God in brokenness. He was able to write, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He goes on in Psalm 51, he says, you've restored the joy of my salvation. David was an adulterer, not just an adulterer, as you know, a murderer, as he tried to cover up his sin by having her husband put to death, being put on the front lines, the troops retreat from him so that death would be certain. God forgave him, forgave him. He said, the guilt's gone, the joy of my salvation is restored. But folks, although he was forgiven, he went to his grave knowing consequences. And as I've shared many times from this pulpit, God used the consequences themselves to bring David to greater brokenness, to greater dependence upon him, to a greater intimacy on God. But I tell you something, if David could go back that night when he came out on his roof and he saw Bathsheba, if he realized that if he would have followed through in adultery, that it would cause what it caused in his family. Because what was the primary consequence? You remember, don't you? Who remembers? God said, the sword will never leave your family. And there was this tremendous family conflict to the point where Absalom came after his dad, revolted, tried to take over his throne, tried to have his daddy killed. So, you know, we're at this sort of Mickey Mouse place in the church where you, there's this thought, if you're forgiven, there's no consequences. Two different things. You know, I can, I can, I can get drunk, uh, wreck my car, and I can ask God and He can forgive me, but that may not bring back the arm that I lost in the wreck. So there are consequences. There are consequences. And so let me show you the most important question to ask. And this is it. And what a great place to end. And it was the question Joseph asked when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. This is found in Genesis 39.9. It's there in your notes. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? That's what he asked. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? And you know what this brings us back to as we close? 
we're in a series, What Jesus Looks For in the Church. And you remember the first church we looked at? The church at Ephesus. And what did we see that Jesus wants more than anything else? Remember, this was the church that gave Jesus everything but the one thing he wanted most. And what does he want most? Our first love. Our worship. Our affection. Our hearts. And what a wonderful place to end the message on. We're brought right back face to face with our relationship with God. Is he really my first love? Can I honestly say there's no rival to God in my heart? I'm not refusing him anything. I'm refusing to retreat from anything he's asking me to do. So we're right back to the key is our relationship with him. Where he becomes so beautiful, so majestic, so awesome... That the greatest motivation in our lives would be to do nothing to hurt him. Or to allow any, that I would not allow anything to come between my relationship and him. And I realize, therefore, that sin ultimately is what? Spiritual adultery. And so that's our greatest need, is to strengthen our relationship with him. Because what have we seen in these churches, even so far? We've only done four. Once you leave your first love, it sets you down a pattern. And that leads you to what? We saw it in Pergamum and Thyatira. Compromise. When Jesus is no longer your first love, your heart's divided. It inevitably leads to compromise. Compromising God's truth, watering it down, lowering your standards, which opens the door then to moral impurity. Bow with me in prayer. Let me just give a moment for you to uh, respond to God in this message. In a group of people this size, I would imagine there are those here that would find themselves even right now in moral failure. And this is an opportunity for you to repent, even as... Christ gave the church at Thyatira an opportunity to repent, to judge their own sin. God gives you that opportunity to acknowledge the sin, to turn back to God as your first love. There may be many, many others, and you would have to admit, I've never really gotten serious about my thought life. And I see today the need to engage in that battle. And to ask God to give me the grace to bring every thought, every affection, my very will itself captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And so ask God to give you the grace to turn from evil thoughts to good thoughts to learn to bounce your eyes and your thoughts off of anything that would be inappropriate and place them on that which would be pleasing to God. And that will be a process. But I can tell you from personal experience, if you will get serious and engage in that, you can literally develop a new way of living. You can develop a new habit. 
where it will become just almost a spontaneous reflex. It, that won't happen immediately, overnight, but as you trust God and you just continue to obey and trust Him in this area, in this realm. And, um, and then I, I don't know how God spoke. Maybe some of these young people, the need to establish protective standards. Some of you married couples uh, to take some of the advice we just talked about to keep romance alive in your marriage. So I'll be quiet. Just let you have a little alone time with God and, uh, and respond.